Welcome to the Security Weekly News Wrap-Up for the week of 13 September, in which we bash Microsoft for a while, TikTok, QAnon, uh, and more news from the sunny shores of Venus. All this and more on this episode of Security Weekly News Wrap-Up. This is Security Weekly, for security professionals, by security professionals. It's the show that keeps you up to date on the latest security news twice a week. Your trusted source for accurate security information and expert analysis. It's time for Security Weekly News. Do you know where your organization's crown jewel data is, whose data it is, what it contains, and if it's flagged, tagged, and classified accurately? Defense In-Depth requires discovery in-depth. At Big ID, they help organizations uncover dark data, classify sensitive and regulated data, meet compliance requirements, and take action for data on-prem, in the cloud, and everywhere in between. Learn more about how Discovery In-Depth can change the way enterprise organizations find, classify, and protect sensitive data at securityweekly.com forward slash big ID. The question is simple. Have any of the systems on my network been compromised? The answer is harder than it should be. Enter AI Hunter. Active Countermeasures has automated and streamlined techniques used by the best pen testers and threat hunters in the industry to create AI Hunter, a network threat hunting solution that does the first pass of a hunt for you to identify systems that are most likely to be compromised and scores the results on a scale from 0 to 100. You can then research those systems in depth with AI Hunter. Focus your valuable time on the systems that need your expertise with AI Hunter. Sign up for a personal demo today at securityweekly.com forward slash ACM. Hello, I'm Doug White from Roger Williams University and welcome to the Security Weekly News Wrap-Up Show. But first, we'll wrap up all the topics for the week. On application security number 121, Mike, Matt, and John had an interview with Frank Catucci, the Senior Director of Application Security at Gartner. Uh, the segment was uh, talking about developing developer-friendly AppSec, uh, something that's always a challenge, and a discussion about DevSecOps, the basics for some, uh, that DevSecOps is a struggle for some and it's the basics for others. Always one of the big challenges, so it's fun to, to hear somebody talking about uh, that. I know I have dealt with that for a long, long time. On Business Security Weekly number 187, Paul, Jason, and Matt talk with John Lucatus, uh, the VP of R&D at Eclipsium, and they were talking about how cyber adversaries are staying one step ahead of controls. And I mean, I think we see that all the time. We see it in the news stories. We see it everywhere that, you know, as you put new, new, new tactics in place, people shift gears and try to move on. But in particular, they were talking about how we develop endpoint protections and how they move further inwards towards firmware, hardware, and device vulnerabilities as these, hard, as these protections go into place because they really don't have a choice. And they did talk about some recent exploits uh, like this and what steps you might should be taking to protect yourself. Uh, Jason was back in the studio as well for that segment, so uh, if you haven't seen Jason Albuquerque in a while, uh, you can see him on there. Uh, on Enterprise Security Weekly number 198, John, Matt, and Paul talked with Farah Mavatuna, uh, always a fun guest. He's the CEO of NetSparker, and uh, we, we see him on a lot of shows here and there. They were talking about how organizations mature, uh, how as organizations mature and grow, they have to start looking for ways to achieve more with less. 
uh, and how do mature organizations approach web application security at scale. Uh, overall, is an interesting segment, which incl also included five myths about DAST and some other issues, so a, a lot of fun. A final segment on, the, on that show was with Jimmy Mesta, who's the Director of Security Research at Signal Sciences, and that segment focused on how mergers and acquisitions create security threats and opportunities. Uh, for growth. So uh, interesting stuff there. They also talked about uh, legacy technology, the cloud, and, and how you get from one to the other. On Security Weekly News number 65, Jason Wood was talking about a Russian hacker who was selling a zero-day how-to video. <laughs> it was an interesting story uh, this week. Uh, it was a Magento skimming operation that they were selling a zero-day to. And basically what this guy was doing was he said he was only going to sell 10 uh, accesses to this for $5,000 a piece. So somebody that was saying, hey, I'm going to make more by limiting how many people I would give access to this zero day he had found uh, in uh, Magento. At Security and Compliance Weekly number 43, Jeff, John, Josh, and Scott talked with David King, the founding member and owner of uh, Cyber Support Alliance. Uh, the subject here, and, and I was really interested in this, uh, the subject here was how have we already lost the cybersecurity wars on two major fronts. Uh, one of those being that cyber criminals already have our unalterable PII, uh, and, but, but we nevertheless spend tons of time trying to regulate and develop tools to protect PII. And also that small and med medium businesses are the hardest hit by the cyber by cybercrime, but cybersecurity service providers largely ignore them. Uh, that discussion continued on to the second segment as usual, but I was very interested in that because it, it echoes a couple of things that I would say over and over again. And I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about that in my thread of the week. Uh, on Paul Security Week on the Marathon, Paul's Security Weekly number six six seven. Uh, Mike Ware, the Senior Director of Technology at Synopsys, was the first guest, and they were talking about uh, building security, the uh, Building Security and Maturity Model, BSIM, uh, and the latest version, which is BSIM 11. So BSIM is, if you aren't familiar with it, is about AppSec programs and initiatives and how to manage them. So a, an interesting segment, if you, again, if you're involved in any way in AppSec stuff. Uh, on segment two, James Spiteri, uh, the solutions architect uh, for cybersecurity and for cybersecurity specialist global solutions lead at Elastic, was on to talk about the Elastic detection engine. And Elastic has put up a GitHub repository uh, of public detection rules for the Elastic engine. So if you're using Elastic or you've been thinking about using it, uh, it's a great segment to hear about the new things that they're doing. And, and I mean, and I'm a huge fan, so definitely something worth checking out. And of course, the, 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 the security news uh, was on. Uh, Besides Boston is the 26th of September. Uh, that's next Saturday. And some of us will be in the Discord room. It's free, so you should probably check it out. Uh, last time, uh, Sam and I did a mini contest in the Discord room and gave out some uh, challenge coins, and uh, I, I revealed some secrets. Uh, and we also gave out swag and prizes. So uh, if nothing else, come by and check out the Discord room and say hi. Uh, if you can't uh, attend some of the great sessions at B-Sides Boston, but if you want to hang out there as well, uh, I put a link in the wiki so you can actually uh, jump on and uh, I, I don't even know if you have to register, but it's free. Uh, B-Sides Denver is today, I think. It was also free, so if you want to still get in on some of the sessions at B-Sides Denver, I think you can do that. 
My favorite threat of the week is going to have to be the third party. So the third party is, is the one-armed man. It's the thing you didn't see or expect uh, because you didn't have anything to do with it. It's the vending machine in the lobby that uses Wi-Fi to tell the supplier to order more Hot Pockets. It's the valve stem on your car that allows for access to the local network. It's the API that allows anyone that queries access to everything in your system. It's the valve actuator that can't be, that you can see in the parking lot because it's running it's running as root and it's broadcasting its SSID. Uh, a long time ago, I was working as a consultant. We were trying to help people get approved to be vendors at a at a secret facilities, and uh, it was in a, another country. But there were people who, who brought in laundry, uh, they brought in coffee machines, they brought in food, they, they hauled away trash, they did all kinds of things for the, for the base. But um, when we started looking at them, and, and these, were, these were companies that were local there, um, it was really crazy. I mean, this is just an analogy to what's going on today. But uh, this one company we looked at, they literally used uh, illegal unlicensed truck drivers that just showed up every day. Uh, you never knew who was going to show up or who they were. They just showed up, and they all and the trucks had a driver's license clipped on the visor, and basically, you know, uh, <laughs> it was like, what? What do you mean? It's just like you don't know who they are. But you know, I was telling them, well, you have to vet every single person that comes on the base, and that person has to match the vetting. You can't just have a driver's license clipped to the visor that says Ryan Borofsky, and the guy driving the truck is Vivian Radoslovitz. And, you know, they have no ID, no passport, no nothing. Uh, and it was a real revelation to some of these little local companies that that's what they've been doing for years. It was just how they operated. And they were, th this one was delivering food containers. And, you know, they wanted to go on this base. And so this week uh, we did see a PII release from Mailfire that basically compromised a lot of people who were, who were not users of Mailfire, but they were users of dating and porn sites uh, that had put information in. And I honestly, I mean, I was reading these stories and I started thinking about this stuff and I kind of knew what to do about the trucks and the drivers of the trucks. Although in, in the end, that company said, forget it, we're out. We're not going to do this because this is too difficult for us to actually implement. Uh, but I'm not even sure what to do about this. I mean, if, if I have to put all my info into the university, say, and the university then uh, sells my data, which my university doesn't, but they could. Uh, or maybe they don't sell it. Maybe they add an API that mines information about people on the network. It's not, not nefarious. It's something totally legit that they want to do to collect information about students and faculty or whatever. And then that third-party miner, or even something completely different from a miner, like uh, some kind of statistics organization is in there, and they don't even realize that they put a GitHub uh, uh, repository up that has hard-coded credentials or I don't know maybe they put up a github repository that contains a university's database maybe they add an API to their tool that is another third party so it can actually get into fourth parties and fifth parties and it's just this weird chain of AppSec that is really really complicated in a modern age I mean, the university probably didn't even know about this, right? They're using all these different third-party tools. They don't know what's in those third-party tools. And the third parties may not even know what's in their tools because the fourth party that they're using to do statistics engine stuff is using a fifth-party or a sixth-party API 
and and who knows? I mean, we could just keep going with that. And none of them are required to inform me if they like lose control of some of this stuff. And they may not know either. I mean, it's like who knows what went on. I, I mean, I, you know, they were talking about this on Security Compliance uh, Weekly Forty Three this week, in that we've already lost the war. That PII is a battle we've already lost. I mean, the U.S. government collected everything there was to know about me down to the first person I dated and my hat size. Uh, I'm not even kidding. They, they, it, I don't think they asked my hat size, but they probably know what it is because I actually don't. But they did notify me. The federal government notified me when the data in the OMB was hacked. Uh, they basically said in the letter, I got a snail mail letter, an official stationery and all this stuff, that it was probably a nation state, but they weren't sure who. I think they probably knew, but they couldn't tell me. Uh, but you know how it goes. Good luck. Uh, you know, I'm sorry we lost all your data, everything, including your hat size. But hey, here's a signed picture of Alexander Haig and a complimentary copy of Jeff Mann's autobiography, Nerd Eye. You know, but thanks. <laughs> so combine all this with APIs, GitHub repositories, the cloud other repositories, alien 5G death rays from Venus, and, well, you know, it just makes you think, well, maybe that war really is lost. But, hey, that's what keeps the liquor store in business. So now the top news from all the show. Uh, Congress is trying to pass a bipartisan bill dealing with IoT again. So they first tried this in 2017, and it kind of fell apart, and then they put it back up in the late, uh, late part of 2019. So the bill, which is called the IoT Cybersecurity Improvement Act, uh, it did finally pass the House this, this year, uh, but it will still have to go to the Senate to be signed by the president before it would actually be enacted. The law would require NIST, which is the National Institute of Standards and Technology, to issue standards and guidelines for secure development, patching, identity management, and configuration management for IoT products if that IoT is to be used by the federal government. Obviously, none of this applies to private sector, but it applies to government and government contractors. It also mandates that NIST would have to work with the industry uh, I'm not sure who that industry is because IoT industry is not exactly clearly defined, but they would have to work with the industry to conduct coordinated disclosure of vulnerabilities found in IoT devices. Now, that would, of course, extend to any vendor or contractor that was working for federal dollars, and they would all have to comply with this as well. Um, if they wanted to keep working with the federal government. Now, some of them may go back to what I was doing, I was talking about earlier, and they just say, forget it. Uh, but, you know, nevertheless, there was not really any information in this article about whether the Senate, which has a huge backlog of bills that have been stalled in the Senate for a while, have been, well, when it would be read or if they would even take it up this year. So it's hard to say if that bill will get passed this time. Uh, but with that in mind, Mosey Botnet was reported as representing 90% of all traffic to and from IoT devices, according to IBM X-Force. So if you don't know, Mosey is a peer-to-peer -peer botnet, which uh, first appeared in 2019 and primarily at that time was targeting routers and DVRs. But uh, the bot itself executes a WGET. So the bot, as soon as the bot gets up and running, it executes a WGET shell that downloads the main file, which is mosey.a, which then basically is, the attacker has full control of the device. And in some cases, they can, um, they can basically overwrite the firmware 
Uh, they can compromise the IoT device in other ways. They can use the IoT device to gather information and, con and connect back home. Uh, but Mosey is a framework that has a shifting approach to exploits. So it tries different things to see if it can get into the devices. And it has a built-in Telnet brute force attack that has a dictionary file attached to it. So it's not really, it's more of a dictionary attack than a brute force. Uh, it runs on UDP port 14737. It shuts down other ports. Uh, but basically the P2P IoT threat surface has seen a lot of activity this year. So Mosey's just the latest in this in this category. Earlier this year, we had DDG and Fritz Frog, uh, which we reported on before. But apparently, Mosey is now the one that's producing the most traffic and threats from an ever-increasing number of IoT devices that do use these P2P meshes to operate. So P2P approaches are really effective for this kind of thing because they don't have a command and control server, so you're not you're not getting blocked by whitelisting or anything like that. Uh, and, it re and the detection is more difficult because it just takes over and decentralizes the whole compromise. Microsoft introduced OneFuzz this week. Uh, they didn't introduce it, but they released it this week. I should have said it that way. Uh, this is a fuzzer uh, testing framework for Azure. So fuzz testing, if you don't really know what that is, 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 uh, is an AppSec-oriented uh, idea. And it basically is an automated or, or mostly automated approach which uh, creates a lot of random data for testing software or, app or apps or whatever you want to test. And it just bombards these applications with all sorts of different randomized things. And they, you know, they shift around. And you're trying to find anomalous behavior of the software before it's released based on stuff that users might do and or data that gets generated or whatever, whatever the software actually does. Um, we used to call this a really long night because we used to have to test uh, apps that were developed at the bank to see if different random inputs, like one time I spent a long time because somebody sent a leading zero into a payroll system and nobody could figure out why it was generating these weird random paychecks. And it turned out that that leading zero, as many of you probably already realized, caused that, that number to be read as octal. So uh, whenever that octal string was read, uh, nobody had caught that, it caused the system to crash. Uh, so this is, of course, what fuzzers allow you to do many, 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 many times. And then you can go back and see if the fuzz, uh, the fuzzer has generated a crash or an error. Uh, one fuzz is available on GitHub and it's open source. Uh, but this is what Microsoft uses to test a lot of their tools. So it's definitely worth checking out if you're developing uh, AppSec stuff. I put a link to both the repository and the article on the wiki. Speaking of Microsoft, a new exploit called Zero Logon is, a, uh, is an, an escalation of what was previously a kind of not-so-dangerous privilege escalation, um, and it was addressed in the August security update. So the point of this article, obviously, is that you probably want to patch uh, your, your Microsoft products. There are apparently four different methods of executing this attack available on GitHub, and they work prior to the August 2020 security patches, uh, the vulnerability was discovered by Secura in the net logon function, uh, and this initial version was not considered very dangerous, but uh, it required a man-in-the-middle attack and all this other kind of stuff. But this new attack allows you to build home-rolled auth tokens for net logon uh, remote protocol, and that can allow, essentially, you to reset the domain controller password. <laughs> and, you know, being able to reset a domain controller's password remotely is, you know, 
that's a pretty dangerous kind of problem. Apparently, the flaw is in the way it handles the AES CFB8 encryption. Uh, primarily, um, in, in use, the attacker sets the init vector of this, which is supposed to be a random number. But if you set it to all zeros, it means that you can essentially home roll an auth token uh, because you know what the you know what the hash is going to be, and then you can take over the domain controller. Yeah, which would be pretty bad. Uh, the whole attack and the process are are very detailed in this uh, wiki article I put up. So you probably want to use these patches. But as long as we're bashing Microsoft, let's bash them a little more. Uh, this week also there was an MFA WS Trust exploit. Uh, that is old. So this WS Trust problem is, uh, has been around a while. Uh, but apparently now that same vulnerability that, that has been around for a while can be used to attack Azure Visual Studio and even Office 365, which I think is now called Microsoft 365, to get around uh, multi-factor authentication. So WS Trust is a component of WS Security. And basically, it's a component that's used for renewing and validating security tokens. So you've seen a lot of attacks lately around these security token kind of things. And what happens is if you can get around this security token, it could create a trust relationship in messaging. And that's the whole point of WS Trust in the first place. Uh, the article here basically says that WS Trust protocol is inherently insecure. And apparently, Microsoft identity providers use this. Uh, as a mechanism to, uh, to create. And of course, using this WS Trust exploit then gives you a number of ways you can get around multi-factor authentication and access cloud services. Attacks that were reported included spoofed IPs, uh, that, that you spoof the IP and then you can manipulate the headers in order to get around the MFA. So it, it, because it's a trusted IP, I guess, already, you can spoof that IP address in the header and that lets you kind of get sidestep the whole process. Uh, Proofpoint uh, was the people that were doing this. They tested numerous attacks on this and said that MFA is a growing target and flaws such as this are a gateway to getting around. Uh, as we implement MFA, this is a way to get around it. And we just keep seeing this as the low-hanging fruit disappear. Attackers have to go down a little bit further. That was on that Business Security Weekly 187 that I mentioned earlier. President Trump continued his war on TikTok, and it would appear that Oracle, and I have an update to this story at the end, but up that Oracle rather than Microsoft will be the manager of TikTok in the United States. I mentioned this story on the news earlier in the week, but this article that I put up is not actually about Donald Trump banning TikTok. It was about how Donald Trump doesn't really understand the real threat China poses through all this software, firmware, hardware, and so forth. Uh, that Huawei and others, uh, you know, even though they've been blacklisted by the United States, uh, you know, they're still out there. They still make hardware. They still make chips. That Zoom is owned by China, and, and I could go on with a list of stuff that's owned by China that we're not even talking about. But this article is an op-ed from an editor from Hong Kong, so no love lost for the mainland. Uh, he paints a pretty scary picture of China as having a dream of global dominance through software, hardware, and firmware. And he may not be wrong. I've been to China many times, and while I'm a huge fan of the people and the history and the culture of China, uh, China is, and they're definitely famous for playing the long game. I'm not a fan of the government. Uh, but it is a Chinese ideology like Go, which is a game, if you've never seen it, of many, many small moves that add up to uh, you know, a, a bigger win. 
So a lot of countries dream of world dominance, but China might actually have the ideology to play that long game, that game of many, many, many small moves that leads to victory somewhere down the, ro the road. And so this article is worth a read. But just breaking this morning, Donald Trump, uh, the president of the United States, issued new rules this morning, which effectively says they are banning TikTok and WeChat, uh, both Chinese apps, from United States app stores. It's not 100% clear what that means. The order only affects U.S. app stores, so sideloading from other you know, VPNs or whatever would still go on. And it supposedly goes into effect Monday. So midnight Sunday, they put that into effect. Um, I, I did post the breaking story. They may have updated it by now since I pulled it up on the New York Times earlier this morning. QAnon, the wacky conspiracy group uh, popular with the U.S. President Donald Trump, uh, shut down their main site, uh, qmap.pub, after a fact-checking site, logically.ar, doxed Jason Gilanis from New Jersey as the developer and main, uh, they called him the mouthpiece of QAnon. Um, they basically then, of course, doxed his home address and so forth, and, and all this was reported in Bloomberg. Galinas uh, declined any comment, but he did say that QAnon was a patriotic movement to save the country. Uh, if you haven't read any of this nonsense from QAnon, well, I would skip it. it it's, it's, I'm, I'm a fan of conspiracies, but this one is just flat-out ridiculous and stupid. Uh, read about the king of the world living under the Denver airport. That one's a lot more fun. QAnon, not so much, just silly. Temple University released their ransomware tracking site this week. It's called the Critical Infrastructure Ransomware Attack, uh, C-I-R-W-A, which began last year. It has over 680 records that go all the way back to 2013. Uh, and the site is offered with all the data for free as an Excel file and to anyone who requests it from Temple University. I did put links to the site uh, in the wiki as well as an article about the site. So if you want to check that out because you want to collect, uh, start collecting or researching malware attacks uh, that they have collected, uh, it might be uh, worth your while. And finally, I did a report uh, on, on Tuesday about possible evidence of phosphine gas on Venus, uh, which is a possible sign of anaerobic bacteria. Uh, not necessarily, it doesn't indicate that, but it could be. Uh, but in a follow-up to this, Dmitry Rogozin, who is the head of the Russian Aeronautics Corporation, Roscosmos, uh, made two announcements uh, this week about this finding. Uh, his first, and he's a, he's a well-known, like, you know, troll type uh, guy but um the first announcement he made this week said that venus absolutely belongs to russia and uh, and two he is planning to send more missions there yeah he's kind of a russian elon musk type guy so who knows what he may do uh and russia did land a probe uh called venera on venus a long time ago back in the 70s and the data from the spacecraft Venera actually did sit, get streamed back to Earth for about an hour before it stopped functioning, which led to the planet being described as hell uh, in Russian. Uh, but so maybe if Russia wants to claim it, I, I mean, I guess they can have it. I mean, I don't know. The Venusian weather report for today was 470 degrees Celsius with sulfuric acid clouds and overcast. And that's the news wrap-up for the week of 13 September 2020 in the time of plague. I'm Doug White from the already online cybersecurity program at Roger Williams University. We'll see you next week on the network that never shuts down. Please don't buy into these ridiculous conspiracies. Bye. <laughs>